Okay, if you've got your Bibles, please open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 1. As way of review, I want to remind you of what's happening in the life of David at this point. After sparing Saul's life for the second time, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David decided that he was no longer safe residing in Israelite territory, so he relocated to the land of the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 27. And he endeared himself to King Achish, king of the Philistines, but he was secretly defeating the enemies of Israel while he was giving the king the impression that he was fighting the Philistine battles. Eventually, the Philistines found themselves mustering for war against the Israelites, and David and his band of 600 fighting men were actually going to accompany the Philistines to that battle. But as we find out in 1 Samuel chapter 29, the Philistine lords, they approached King Achish and voiced their opposition to David's involvement because they feared David might turn on them in the midst of battle in order to win the favor of King Saul. And so they approached King Achish and said, hey, don't let David go into battle with us. And so King Achish ordered David and his men to return home. And so they did. And upon returning home in 1 Samuel chapter 30, they discovered that their city had been burned and their families had been taken captive by the Amalekites. And so after receiving direction from God, David and his fighting men pursued the Amalekites, overtook the Amalekites, and handily defeated them. In the process, they rescued their families, and they, they uh, captured the spoils of war, and they made their way back home. Meanwhile, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, the Philistines and Israelites engaged in battle at Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines were victorious. Not only did they win the war, but they managed to kill Saul and three of his sons, including Jonathan. And I want to start by reading 1 Samuel chapter 31, or at least the first seven verses, to get those details as we transition into 2 Samuel chapter 1. So here's 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul. And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not. For he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were, who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. So at the end 
of 1 Samuel, Saul has died, Jonathan has died, and the Philistines had taken possession of much of the land of Israel. That's how 1 Samuel ends. But then we pick up in 2 Samuel. And let, let's find out the rest of the story. 2 Samuel chapter 1, the first 10 verses. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, and he came to David. He fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called to me, and I answered Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. And I'm sorry I did not advance this to follow along. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that the details provided in 2 Samuel chapter 1 are a little different than the details provided in 1 Samuel chapter 31. This has caused some scholars in particular uh, to claim that this messenger wasn't telling the truth, that he lied about what happened to King Saul, how he came about obtaining the crown and the armlet, how he came about being the one who killed King Saul, that some scholars believe he's lying in order to win David's favor. And that is a possibility, because in 2 Samuel, one thing that's going to unveil itself is there's going to be a lot of deception that plays out throughout the book. It's, even, it's almost a theme throughout the book for someone to deceive another person, and We'll unfold some of that in the coming weeks, but you can think about Absalom, who will, who will deceive his own father at some point, his father David at some point. You, can, you have, uh, um, anyway, there will be other examples that are going to pop up, so that's a possibility. But we also must consider the fact that when David hears this message, as we're going to find out in just a moment, he takes it at face value. The author of 2 Samuel doesn't present David as accusing the messenger of lying, David accepts what the messenger says as truth and acts upon it. And so it's just as possible that this messenger came upon the, the, the dying Saul, fulfilled Saul's wish, and that's how he came about obtaining the crown and the armlet. It really doesn't matter whether or not what the messenger here says is true, because the focus of the text is ultimately on how David responds rather than on what the messenger says. And that's going to be focus of our study tonight, David's response to Saul's death. Because we can learn a lot 
from the way David responded to these events. I want you to notice David's immediate response was that he grieved Saul's death. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. I want you to notice what David did not do. He did not celebrate. You know, you would think someone who has been pursued by Paul, I mean by Saul for years, someone who has been a fugitive even though he's done nothing wrong, someone who has had his entire life stripped away by King Saul would rejoice at the demise of King Saul. Someone who's supposed to be the next king and has been stuck in waiting for a decade. You would think that would bring about a celebration that finally my enemy is gone. Finally the throne is empty and can be mine. You would think that would be David's mentality, but no. David doesn't rejoice in the in the death of his opponent. David doesn't rejoice in the, in the, the execution, that's really not the right word, but the demise of his enemy. David doesn't celebrate the abdication of that throne. David grieves. The tearing of clothes and the uh, placing of ashes on the head, those were symbolic means of demonstrating mourning, both in the ancient Near East and in the biblical text. And look how long they mourned. This was a, a, the rest of the day. From whatever time this messenger arrived until that evening, they mourned. And at some point, David feels it's necessary to get a little bit more information out of this messenger. So in verse 13, he said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now that had already been mentioned earlier in the text when, when he interacted with King Saul. King Saul asked him, and he identified himself as an Amalekite. And that is so significant for a few different reasons. First and foremost, you've got to think about the Amalekites. Who are they? They are one of Israel's biggest enemies. One commentator said it this way, not only were the Amalekites among David's worst enemies, they were also the traditional enemies of Israel because of their vicious and unprovoked attack shortly after the Exodus. You can go back to Exodus chapter 17, and as the Israelites are, are, are relocating from Egypt to the promised land, it's the Amalekites who attacked them unprovoked. And it's because of that attack, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God orders Saul to go wipe out the Amalekites. And as we've mentioned multiple times in this study, Saul didn't do that. He spared King Agag and the spoils of war. And now this Amalekite is the one reporting to David about Saul's death. 
And where had David just been? While Saul and the Israelites are battling the Philistines, where was David? Pursuing a bunch of Amalekites that had destroyed his city and captured his family. And now, here rolls up an Amalekite. So right off the bat, this guy has no sympathy from David and his men. Because he descended from a group of people that were the nemesis of Israel, that were supposed to have been wiped out by King Saul, and that had personally attacked David's family, and he just had to go chase them down. The other thing you really need to know about Amalekites is because they were an enemy of Israel, it's probably uncertain to David and his men why this guy was at Gilboa in the first place. He says he came from the camp of Israel. He says he just happened to be up there during the battle and came across King Saul. But it's quite possible this guy could have actually been affiliated with the Philistine army that defeated the Israelites. Because it would have been easy for an Amalekite to side with a Philistine. Now, granted, David was initially side with the Philistines, but through the providence of God, he didn't go to that battle. But why was he up there so close to King Saul? Who was pressing in on King Saul at the end of the battle? The Philistines. Could it be that this guy was among them? And now... He got out of there with the crown and the armlet, running to David to win David's favor, to be the guy that reports on the death of David's chief rival and hopefully receive a reward for it. So there's a lot at stake here with this Amalekite identity. It's also a beautiful piece of irony. Because when you reflect on the fact that King Saul was instructed to annihilate the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. He was not supposed to leave one alive. And now at the end of his life, he's asking one to take his life. He spared the king of the Amalekites, and now as king, an Amalekite is taking his life. There's this irony woven into this story that only God could produce, to be honest. And so his identity is so significant on so many levels. But it's the fact that he is this enemy of Israel, and in particular at this moment an enemy of David because of his association with this nation. And it's his involvement, at least his claimed involvement, in the death of Saul that's going to lead to what happens next. Because if you look at the 14th verse, David has one more question for him, but it's a rhetorical question. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This is one of those moments where I I love the fact uh, that our biblical texts capitalize the word Lord there. You may be aware of this, because I know I've mentioned this in sermons before, but when you see Lord capitalized, that's the personal name of God that we refer to as Yahweh. That's the Hebrew term 
that is written in the text and the way we translate it um, is to capitalize the word Lord. He's speaking to an Amalekite. And David says, how is it that you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy Yahweh's anointed? Yahweh is not the God of the Amalekites. They don't, they don't acknowledge and worship Yahweh. But David is saying, that's the one true God, and you just killed the one he appointed king. You should have been more fearful of that, because even Saul's armor bearer wouldn't do that. The guy assigned to essentially equip and protect King Saul would not take Saul's life, even though Saul was mortally wounded. But this foreigner would. And so what happens next? Well, we'll get to that. Because underlying this question, this rhetorical question, is David's own mindset towards the king. You may recall, if you go back to 1 Samuel 24, when David had the opportunity to sneak up on Saul inside of a cave, and he cut off the corner of that robe, he was urged by his men to kill Saul. His men were saying, hey, this is an opportunity God is giving you. Why don't you take it? But David refused to do so. In fact, you can look particularly at verse 6 after he cut off the corner of Saul's robe and he felt guilty about it. He went back to his men and he said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's Yahweh's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's Yahweh's anointed. David felt guilty just for cutting off the corner of the robe of Saul because Saul was appointed by God. And then in 1 Samuel 26, another opportunity presents itself for David. And one of his mighty men, a guy named Abishai, went with him into the, the, the Israelite camp while they were all sleeping. Saul's asleep in the middle. Abner, the commander of his army, is sleeping next to him, and the whole army is surrounding him. But they're in a deep sleep that God brought upon them. And David's man, Abishai, says, hey, this is the opportunity the Lord's given you. You ought to take it and kill King Saul. And David responded to Abishai's suggestion by saying this in verse 10, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or, or, or his day will come to die, or he will go down. Nope, I, I need to go back to verse 9. I'm sorry, I realized I was missing it. David said to Abishai in verse 9, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Then in verse 10, and David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. David has such an appreciation for the fact that Saul, as king, was chosen by God. Such an appreciation that he refuses to harm King Saul when given the opportunity. And he expects the same of everyone else. As one commentator pointed out, David had the highest reverence for the sanctity of the Israelite king, the anointed one of Yahweh. And that which he refused to do out of respect for the king, this Amalekite had actually done for the sake of gain. See, David understood that the reason this messenger contributed to the death of Saul, or at least 
reported that he contributed to the death of Saul was because he wanted something out of David. The messenger assumed that the news of Saul's death would be good news to David and would be rewarded. Now we find this out by skipping ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 4. We'll come back uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 1 in a minute, but if you skip ahead to 2 Samuel chapter 4, we actually read about how two men named Rechab and Baana executed Saul's sole surviving son, Ishbosheth. And then according to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David. And they said to, to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. They assumed that they had done something that would please David because they removed David's royal competition from the throne. But, but David responded to them by recounting his response to the news of Saul's death. So if you look at verse 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 4, David said to Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. When the messenger came to David, he thought he was bringing good news. He thought he was going to receive a reward. Now go back to chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. David didn't per perceive this as good news. Look at how he dealt with this messenger. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And reflecting on his decision over there in 2 Samuel chapter 4, where we just were, David said, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him. That messenger thought, I'm bringing good news because I'm reporting that the king's enemy is dead, and I'm going to get a reward. And David's saying, that wasn't good news. The death of the Lord's anointed is never good news. Your reward is your own death. That just shows us how much David respected God's decision of who is king. Now, just as a side note, how much do you respect God's decisions? When God lays something out and says, this is the way I want it to be, how much do you respect that? Even though Saul as king prevented David from fulfilling his ultimate destiny according to God, David never stopped respecting God's initial choice. What about you? You can think in terms of God's design for the church. You know, I'm certain there are times where we, we wish God had designed things to be a little bit different. Maybe Maybe you get frustrated with the elders sometimes. And you wish God designed it a little differently. Maybe you don't like 
particularly women, the restrictions God's placed on your role in the church, and you wish God had designed it a little differently. Maybe you look at your marriage, and you think about that permanency thing God declared, with one exception, and you wish God had designed it a little differently. Do we respect God's institutions the way David respected that institution. There's something we can learn from David about appreciating how God designed something. In fact, David grieved Saul's death so much that he wrote a lament in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And I want you to see just a few lines from this. It, it covers from verse 18 through verse 27. But notice in verse 19 and 20, he says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those were Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And if you look at verse 24, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Do you see how David is praising Saul, despite all Saul has done, all Saul's failures in obeying the Lord, all Saul's failures in his treatment of David, David still praises Saul. In fact, three times in that short lament, he uses the phrase, how the mighty have fallen calling Saul mighty. From our vantage point, Saul was anything but mighty. But from the vantage point of David, Saul deserved respect and honor because he was the Lord's first anointed. And in David's response to Saul's death, we're reminded that people after God's own heart love their enemies. There may not be a more difficult command in all of Scripture than love your enemies. In Luke chapter 6, particularly in verse 32, Jesus said, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus indicated that, in, that, that the world, that the, the, the ungodly, that the unbelievers, that the lost are capable of loving someone that loves them in return. And so Jesus expects those of us who are going to have a heart like his to love by a greater standard. So a couple of verses later, Jesus instructed his disciples, as you can see there in verse 35, to love your enemies. Don't just love the people that love you. Don't just love the people who are easy to love. Don't just love the people that you associate with. Love even the people that hate you and that you hate. And Jesus did not set a standard that he could not keep himself. Because Jesus would go on to issue a love one another command. In John chapter 13, shortly after he washed the feet of his disciples, feet that included that of the one who would betray him shortly thereafter. Jesus did not set a standard of love that he himself would not fulfill. 
And so people after God's own heart understand the importance of loving their enemies. So if we look at David's response to Saul's death, the first thing we notice is that he grieved Saul's death. The second thing I want you to notice is that David waited for Saul's throne. Now, after Saul's death, it it seems reasonable that David should march up there to Jerusalem and take his rightful place on the throne, even though technically Saul never reigned from Jerusalem, but that's a different story, different day. Samuel had anointed David to be the next king a decade earlier. His king-to-be status was apparently somewhat common knowledge around Israel. Even Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, acknowledged that David was going to be the next king. Jonathan had admitted it much earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 20. So even the reigning king and the heir-to-be were already saying he's the next king when they looked at David. So around the countryside, it was known pretty much that David was going to be the next king. But David didn't go claim the throne right away. Isn't that fascinating? That's totally opposite of what, how the world operates in such a scenario. The throne is abdicated. It's time for me to go claim my throne. That's the mentality of the world. But David didn't respond as the world would expect. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1-4. through 4. After this, David inquired of the Lord. Have you noticed how often David does that? That's the beautiful thing about David. A decision presents itself, and David says, Okay, before I choose which way to go, let me consult with God. Now, granted, David had the luxury of the ephod that Abiathar the priest possessed. The ephod that was instructed by God to be made for use at the tabernacle. And they had this thing called the Urim and Thummim. And there was this process by which you could ask God a yes or no question. And this, these, I believe they were stones, would be used by the priest. And only the priest knew how to operate them. But you would get your yes or no response. So David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Uh, You can see there, while David was anointed by Samuel because the Lord had chosen him, this anointing here is signifying the acceptance of his reign by the people of Judah. This isn't when he was anointed by the Lord. This is a man anointing. Anyway, notice how he waited on the Lord. Notice how he didn't move. He wasn't impatient. Instead of rushing into Jerusalem, storming the palace and plopping down the throne, he waited for God's approval and direction. And it's important to note that God didn't send him to Jerusalem, or to the location of Saul's throne. God didn't even make him king over the entire nation at this point. He's king of the house of Judah. That's one tribe. 
You see, if you look at verse 8 through 11 of 2 Samuel 2, you'll find out that Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So here's what happens. Abner is the chief military officer in Saul's army. And when Saul dies and Jonathan dies and those other two sons of Saul die, Abner went and found Ishbosheth, the last remaining son of Saul, and ran off across the Jordan to the other side of the Jordan River and set up a kingdom there for Israel under the leadership of Ishbosheth. Abner's running the show, but Ishbosheth is the uh, embodiment of the throne because he is a legitimate descendant of Saul. And so all Israel, the 11 tribes outside of Judah, are still under the reign of a Sauline descendant. David's only got Judah. And you notice, Ishbosheth. We're told he's got two years, and we'll find out why in a moment. But seven and a half years that David is going to be king solely of Judah, nobody else. David starts out reigning over one tribe, while a descendant of Saul had the other eleven. Did David complain? Did he pout? Did he argue with God? Did he cry foul when Ishbosheth was made king of Israel? No. No, he waited patiently for God's timing when it comes to his throne. And David's response to Saul's death, in particular, not rushing to take the throne, is a reminder that people after God's own heart patiently wait on God. But patience doesn't come easy. We find it more difficult to wait than almost any other activity that cultivates Christian character. And the most frustrating aspect of patience is that it must be learned. Patience isn't a characteristic that you inherit. Patience isn't a characteristic you're born with. When an infant is hungry, is he or she patient? When an infant has to go to the bathroom, is he or she patient? When an infant is tired, is he or she patient? You are not born with patience. You're sitting here on a Sunday morning, and you can recognize that very quickly because you'll have babies that need attended to. Patience is a learned trait. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, Paul identified patience as a fruit of the Spirit, which means it is the product of a life that is being led by God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, Paul identified patience as a characteristic in which we are to be clothed which means it's an attribute we must choose to embrace. We must put it on ourselves. 
God expects us to have patience as we wait for his timing to work out in areas of our lives where we have little to no control, but we have to learn that patience. And the correct mindset toward time, toward waiting, is ultimately demonstrated by David. Because David declared in Psalm chapter 31, particularly at verse 15, which you can see in capital letters there, he said, my times are in your hands. But you're going to notice that I put some other passages from that same psalm up, up there. Because in Psalm 31, if you look back at verse 5, you have that statement quoted by Jesus on the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. In verse 14, you'll see that David says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. The reason David can declare my times are in your hands are because he committed himself to the Lord and he trusted the Lord. And when he closes out this psalm in the 24th verse, he says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. David understood the importance of waiting because he understood that when you wait, you're demonstrating your trust in God. And people after God's own heart understand how to patiently wait on the Lord's timing. So when we look at David's reaction, David's response to Saul's death, first we see that he grieved, and second we see that he waited. And third, you'll see that he honored Saul's request. In particular, if you'll turn over to, to the ninth chapter of 2 Samuel I know that's skipping a good ways ahead. There's a lot of stories that take place between now and then. But it's in the ninth chapter that we have a, an episode that relates to the death of Saul. In the first verse, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, you have to remember that it was common custom in the eastern dynasties when, that when a new king would take over, all the family members of the previous dynasty were killed so that you could take away the possibility of an usurper, of a revolt. That's why Rechab and Ba'ana thought their execution of Ishbosheth would be pleasing to David back there in chapter 4. They decided to kill the son who had ascended the throne after Saul and bring the head to David because they thought David would be happy that a contender is no longer present. But David remembered a promise he had made to Jonathan years earlier. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David went to Jonathan to find out why Saul was trying to kill him, and Jonathan denied the possibility that his father was intent on harming David. But Jonathan made arrangements for David to hide in a field while he observed his father's behavior. And look at what he said in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 through 16. Jonathan said, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. 
and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And after that, they made a covenant between each other. David is essentially, or Jonathan is asking David, please promise me that when you become king, you don't, you don't cut off my family lineage. You don't kill all of my descendants. And so David agreed to show continual kindness to Jonathan's descendants when he became king, but this wasn't the only time that made, David made such a promise. After he spared Saul's life in that cave back in 1 Samuel chapter 24, this is what Saul said. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with, well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put, you into, put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold... I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And we're told in verse 22 that David swore this to Saul. So David made the promise both to Jonathan and to Saul that he would spare their descendants from death. And he was intent on keeping this promise. So when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 1, and David's asking, is there any other descendant of the house of Jonathan? He's trying to fulfill his promise to Saul and to Jonathan that he wouldn't eliminate their family forever. And David's pursuit of someone from the house of Saul to show kindness to it's a reminder to us that people after God's own heart keep their word. Keeping one's word is essential to integrity. That's the point Jesus was making in the Sermon on the Mount about oaths in Matthew chapter 5. You look at verse 33 and 34. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let what you say, verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The point of this passage isn't to keep us from saying, I swear. The point of this passage is to instruct us that we should do what we say we're going to do. That our words should be binding. That we should not be guilty of falsehood. The issue here isn't so much the use of oaths. In fact, Jesus responded to the high priest when he was put under an oath in John chapter 26. And Paul used oaths in some of his writings, such as Romans chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Whew. The issue isn't so much about oaths. The issue is really about the relationship between oaths and integrity. Swearing or oath-taking is often the necessary result of a failure to be trustworthy. I mean, that was the case when Abimelech asked Abraham to swear by God that you will not deal falsely with me in Genesis chapter 21. And that was all because Abraham was untruthful about his relationship with Sarah at that time. So when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, he simply wants us to be people who keep our word. That's exactly who David is trying to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Someone who keeps his word even to his worst of enemies 
And so David reminds us that people after God's own heart keep their word. And in his response to Saul's death, not only does he, does he want to keep his word, but he also aims to bless Saul's family. David's request to find someone from Jonathan's house to whom he could show kindness led him to a former servant of Saul named Ziba. And if we pick up the reading there in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 2-4, through 4, we find out that David asked Ziba, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba responded, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Now, there are two things that strike me about this conversation between David and Ziba. The first is that David asks, Is there anyone? That use of the word anyone eliminates qualifications to his request. He's not asking, is there, is there anyone qualified? He's not asking, is there anyone worthy? He's not asking, is there anyone important? He does not qualify his request so that it targets only individuals from whom he could benefit. He leaves it open-ended. The second thing that stands out to me is Ziba's response in which he emphasizes the disability of Jonathan's descendants. David didn't ask about the physical, the physical condition of Jonathan's son, but Ziba felt it was important to mention. But why? Why did Ziba feel like he needed to specify that Jonathan's son is crippled? It's as though Ziba is implying that that this descendant isn't worth David's time because he won't be able to reciprocate the kindness that is shown to him. Or maybe he's saying that this individual isn't worth, uh, or, or, or he's trying, it's as if he's trying to tell David, yeah, there's someone out there, but he can't do anything for you. He can't make your life better. He can't reciprocate the blessings you bestow upon him. But remember, David's request had no conditions. And David's response to Ziba's explanation implies that he's not concerned about the disability of this individual. Because all David says after Ziba mentions him is, where is he? David doesn't care that this individual is crippled. David just wants to find him. And there's a couple things we know about Jonathan's son. First, we know he's living in Lo Debar. You can see there, that there at the end of the text. In Hebrew, Lo means no, and Debar means pasture or pasture land. So Mephibosheth lived in the land with no pasture. Or to put it another way, he lived in a, a desolate, barren area. Now, you have to remember he's the grandson of King Saul, so when Saul and Jonathan died in battle, he was a potential heir to the throne. And between David, who was the king-in-waiting, and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, this guy's uncle, who temporarily took the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 2, Mephibosheth feels like a wanted man. Because either David could try to kill him because David's supposed to assume the throne one day, or Ishbosheth could kill him because he's the son of the former prince. Either way, he's got people who probably want him dead. And so where does Mephibosheth end up? In a barren, desolate location. 
in a place nobody would want to come after him. It's as if he went into hiding so that he could avoid being exterminated. But we also know this about Mephibosheth, that his disability is the result of an injury he incurred as a child. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, we find out that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. These details reveal his inability to return the favor to David. And they reveal his innocence in his condition and his situation. He lived in desolation and was physically disabled, not because of anything he had done. But that didn't stop David from showing kindness to Mephibosheth. See, David did not base his actions on the ability of Mephibosheth to reciprocate those actions. He didn't value Mephibosheth based on his abilities or disabilities. David desi desired to show kindness regardless of who Mephibosheth was. You're talking about someone who showed absolutely no favoritism. And that's exactly who God is. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't pick and choose who he's going to love because he loves everyone, regardless of their abilities and regardless of their reciprocation of his love. And so David, a man after God's own heart, reminds us that if we want to be people after God's own hearts, we've got to love like God. A benevolent, gracious, charitable kind of love. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan aided the injured man without expecting any reward, without expecting any recompense, without expecting any recognition. His actions weren't based on what he could get out of the situation, but on what he could do for someone else. And this parable was utilized by Jesus to demonstrate both what it means to love your neighbor and whom that command includes. And as we've pointed out on numerous occasions, how does Jesus end that parable? Ben, go and do likewise. I also want you to consider Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When Jesus spoke of giving to the needy, he instructed his disciples to be different from the hypocrites. This meant not drawing attention to themselves and not seeking the praise of people, but instead 
doing it in secret so that God receives the glory. It's not about what you can get out of it. It's about how it blesses God. Jesus' instructions here in Matthew 6, as well as David's example, they go hand in hand to show us that love, that benevolent activity, that kindness rendered to others are not about us. And people after God's own heart understand that the love they show to others, the mercy they show to others, the grace they show to others, the kindness they show to others is not about them. It's about God. And that's why you don't play favorites. That's why you don't pick and choose. That's why you love like Christ loves you. You see, when you just look at the events that unfold in the aftermath of Saul's death, and how David conducted himself and handled himself in this moment, you can start to peel back layers and see how God expects us to act. What it really looks like to be a man or a woman after God's own heart. Because David, David was grieved at the loss of Saul. David was grieved because he respected God's order, God's decision, God's plan and purpose. And David was patient. He waited till God's timing said, you can be on the throne. Even though that throne was his to take, he still waited until God gave the okay. And David was a man of his word. When he told Saul and he told Jonathan that he would not cut off their descendants, he kept that word, and he went in pursuit of a way he could fulfill his word. And that led him to Mephibosheth, to the last remaining descendant of that family who could not reciprocate favor, but on whom he could show kindness without favoritism. The question for the evening as we close out is when you consider these things that David did in the aftermath of Saul's death, how well do you live up to that standard of being a man or a woman after God's own heart? Let's close out with a word of prayer. Lord God in heaven, we're humbled when we look at individuals in Scripture like David and we see the kind of man and woman you call us to be. And Lord, we, we've come up woefully short, short so many times. And we ask that you forgive us of that. And we ask for your help that you might enable us and empower us to live with a heart like yours. We love you, Lord. Help us to be more like you. It's through the name of Jesus Christ that we offer this prayer. Amen.